Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse the strike on a Russian warship in the Black Sea, discuss Russian attacks on medical facilities across Ukraine, and we look at the future for Ukrainian refugees in the UK. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 4th of August, one year and 161 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor, Dom Nichols, global health advisor and lecturer at the UCL School of Pharmacy, Oksana Pysik, and politics reporter, Genevieve Hall-Allen. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. So let's go to the Black Sea. One of Russia's Rapucha-class landing ships, the Olegorsky Gornyak, has reportedly suffered a serious breach from a maritime drone strike and is unable to carry out combat missions. This is according to Ukrainian intelligence. Now, we think Ukraine attacked Russia's Novorossiysk base, maritime base in southern Russia this morning. So we're about 60 k's southeast of the Kirsch Bridge. Now, that's the base that hosts much of the Black Sea fleet and thought to be all of the Kilo-class subs after last year's strike in Sevastopol by similar maritime drones by Ukraine. So they put, they, Russia pulled out then, stuck most of their fleet in, um, in Novorossiysk, but it's been, been hit again. And those drones that hit the um, base last year have probably been upgraded to the, to the thing that we, that we saw this morning. So a naval drone, this footage you'll see it online and uh, on our website, Naval drone loaded with reportedly 450 kilograms of explosive, so a big old bag of bang. It hit the hull of the ship, reported to have had 100 crew members on board. That came from Ukrainska Pravda. And uh, as I say, you'll see, you'll see uh, footage on, uh, on our website and elsewhere. Now, in response, and somewhat predictably, Russia's defence ministry said it had repelled the attack. The regional governor said there'd been no casualties or damage. Uh, I've got no idea about the casualties, but it's unlikely that that damage quote is correct. Um, Russia's defence ministry said the unmanned boats were detected and destroyed by fire from the standard weapons of Russian ships guarding the outer harbour of the naval base. <laughs> it's just... It's just not right. Go and have a look online. You'll see for yourself. I think I think that's that's rubbish. Not only because of the footage we've seen. There's no indication on the footage. I I can see that it's deep fake. There's been no suggestion anywhere else that it is deep fake. And a number of Russian prominent mill bloggers have talked about it. So Rybar, uh, one of the biggest ones. I mean, you know, they're no fans at all of Ukraine. They are a, a very pro. Russian war machine, but a bit like a stop clock that tells the correct time twice a day. Occasionally, I think we can take what Rybar say. So they said today that the Onogorsky Gornyak, the landing ship, was partially flooded but remained afloat. They posted, It is curious that the drone approached the landing ship unhindered. The crew probably did not expect the attack, as a result of which they did not take measures to destroy the drone. Well, they should have expected the attack. We've seen other maritime drone strikes um some footage from last year you saw rounds hitting the water around the drone as it heads towards the uh, the, the ship it's trying to attack and then another russian telegram channel military informant which has more than half a million subscribers they appeared to hit out at russia's defense ministry after they the mod russian mod said that it had been repelled so military informant said if 
after several attacks on ships and the basis of Estopol, they finally began to take action to prevent future attacks. Then in neighbouring Novorossiysk, they didn't even really try. It is always easier to not deal with real things, but to invent your own reality. Despite the fact that there are videos from unmanned enemy boats and footage of local residents from the shore. Quite interesting, I thought there. Now, this ship, this landing craft, was one of five such vessels to be sent into the Black Sea in February last year uh, to support the invasion. So the reports are unverified, but the imagery you'll see shows it badly listing to one side. The footage shows the drone approaching and then apparently hitting the ship. I say apparently because it is dark and the feed either cuts out at the last second. It's very, very dark. You can't see quite how close it gets. It goes right up to the ship. You can't see exactly how close it gets but at the last second the feed cuts out or it's lost in the blast but it, you know it's right there next to the side of the ship it seems to hit on the port side that's the left hand side when you're standing at the back of the ship facing the front the nautical johnnies will be shouting at me now but yeah the, the left hand side when you're facing the front and hits about the middle of the ship now in response Mikhailo Podolyak advisor to President Zelensky said Drones are changing the rules of the game. I don't particularly like the phraseology of games in war, but he said um, drones are changing the rules of the game, returning the waters to full-fledged foreign jurisdiction and ultimately destroying the value of the Russian fleet. In fact, they are returning everyone to the international law of the sea. The presence of the Russian fleet in the Black Sea and with it Moscow's traditional blackmail will be put to an end. Now then, on the Russian side responding, the Russian port of Sochi decided this morning to fortify security. So the city's mayor said during the operational meeting with the heads of law enforcement agencies, they discussed a set of additional measures to increase the level of security. The interdepartmental working group is improving protection measures, taking into account the experience of other Black Sea port cities, strengthening the security perimeter of the seaport. And in other news, Russian forces are reported to be locking stable doors after a number of recent incidents where horses have bolted from them. Anyway, in other news, reports are difficult to verify, as they always are on the on the movement on the battlefield. There's still a very uh, it's very difficult for journalists to get anywhere near. But it looks as if let's go over to back move. It looks as if Klishkiva and Andreevka have been uh, liberated. So we're about 5k south of Bakhmut here. Klishkiva is about 5k south, and Drivka another kilometre or so further south from there. Elsewhere on the front, down in the on the southern flank of the counteroffensive, there appears that uh, Ukrainian forces are pushing south from Robotine. There was a Russian counterattack on Steromayorsk, so to the southeast. That was the town that was taken last week. That Russian counterattack appears to have failed. Now, I watch this area all the time, watch, I watch all of it all the time, but I watch this, this counteroffensive particularly, and uh, I've been watching that area around Robotone and Tokmak and, and what have you, especially since I listened to defence analyst Michael Kaufman on the, the last brilliant War on the Rocks uh, podcast a couple of weeks ago. He was talking about how Ukraine's nine core are handing over to elements of ten core, ten core having a greater proportion of the Western supply kit. Now, Michael Coffin was saying that some elements, as in small subunits, company squadron, that kind of level uh, of 10 core may have already been pushed into nine core to try to push to the, that sort of line from Orkiv to the northwest of Tokmak. It looks as if they've been fed in piecemeal. It sounds as if nine core is, is if not culminated, then very tired and 10 core that it's not a reserve core it's a second echelon it's not they're not deploying reserves but it sounds as if 10 core are going to be pushed into the fight there now michael coffin was making the really interesting point that some of the older established brigades in the ukrainian military those that have combat experience have fared better than the newer in inverted commas brigades with western kit because of all the i mean the kit might be might be fantastic a leopard 2 brilliant but actually it's the way you employ it it's very difficult to do and sometimes that the lower level combat experience you get from a from an infantry heavy approach has been faring better and we see that in bakhmut so bakhmut is much more fluid russia have had less time to prepare defenses there and as such it's it's if you like a more a more even fight ukraine had more success there but the point he's making is it's a there's a lot more to this than the quality of the kit itself it's how you employ military powers and it's clear or it looks as if there's a change in ukrainian tactics going away from the 
trying to do the kind of combined arms, you know, if you like Western way of warfare, back to a a more infantry-heavy attritional push, that is a perfectly valid uh, strategy. There's no suggestion that, that Ukraine, in doing that, is willing to unnecessarily risk the lives of its service personnel in the way that Russia has been doing so. So low-level attacks, kind of company-level attacks, platoon-level attacks, so very small groupings, if backed up properly and coordinated with artillery, seem to be able to grind forward. Um, you know, We were talking about the grinding fighting back moot with Russia just, just wasting manpower. I, that does not seem to be the case in the South. I think part of the reason for the slow advance is that Ukraine does not want to take the casualties that Russia was uh, seemingly happy to take in Bakhmut. But it is very tricky to get um, ground truth here, but it does look as if that's part of the reason why the advance has been so slow in the south and partly why we see potentially a change in in tactics. But sticking on the front line, Russia's defence minister, Sergei Shoigu, he apparently has been in town, been in, uh, he's been down there somewhere, thanking troops for their successful offensive operations. So he can't have met many of them then, I guess. He visited the frontline headquarters of the centre, Russia's centre army group. Russian TV showed him climbing onto a vehicle that they said was a captured Swedish tank. Now, I don't know, I don't think Sweden put any tanks in. It might be a CV-90 infantry vehicle, but I've not seen the images myself, so i I don't I don't know what it what it was. Shoigu was last at the front in June, but we did see um, earlier this week General Gerasimov, chief of Russia's general staff. He was he was sort of stooging about, although he was only in a headquarters. He wasn't actually outside, so it could have been filmed some time ago. We don't know where that where that was, but this is all part of the nothing to see here, lads policy. You know, after the whole. Prigozhin mutiny, Wagner mutiny thing. Shoigu and Gerasimov are very keen to be out there to say, no, 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 we're in charge. It's all, it's all fine. And then uh, just a couple more things on the on the sort of updates. The Kremlin said that they shot down. Okay, this is interesting. They shot. They said they shot down a dozen drones over Crimea. They said an attempt by Kiev, the Kiev regime, to carry out a terrorist attack. Oh, yawn. It's always a terrorist attack, unlike the nice fluffy Russian drone attacks. But they say uh, an attempt by Kiev to carry out a terrorist attack by aircraft-type unmanned aerial vehicles in the Crimean Peninsula was foiled last night. Ten UAVs were destroyed by air defence facilities on duty. Uh, Three more enemy drones were suppressed by means of electronic warfare. There were no casualties or damage as a result of the foiled terrorist attack. Unquote. Doesn't matter how many times they say terrorist. I I just don't think it's breaking through. Now... I think we can ignore the number, don't worry about the 10, but I think it is interesting that Russia is admitting that Ukraine is regularly launching drone attacks against their forces in Crimea. Uh, we've seen the panic and chaos that is sown amongst the uh, the Russian citizens illegally there. So the more attacks that there, there are, they, this will, they will have an effect. These attacks will have an effect. You can be sure they're being talked about, images shared on Russian social media channels. So you know, the more drone strikes that there are there, regardless of whether or not the Kremlin say they're all shot down or God knows what, you know, th- this will be this this steady drip drip effect. It will be feeding into the Russian social media commentary. And then finally, back in Hezon, so Hezon said to be in mourning for the death of a 25 year old doctor who apparently was killed on his first day at work. So Dimitra Bili was killed in the uh, Yevan Karbelesh City Hospital on Tuesday this week during an attack. Five other medical staff injured. Alexander Pradukin, who's the regional governor, said, today, like dozens of Hezon residents, I came to see off Dimitra Bili on his last journey. Under the wail of sirens, the memory of a brave young doctor who died on his first working day in the hospital was honoured. Just yet again speaks of the um, these attacks on medical facilities and, and others. We've seen it in education, medical. Nothing is respected here on the, on the battlefield. So uh, Hezon today in mourning. Thanks very much for that, Dom. Let's go to Oksana now then. Oksana, can we start there down in Hassan with the death of this doctor? What's your reaction to it? And could you put it into some context for us? So Dmitry Bili was only 25 years old. It was his first day as a fully qualified doctor. Up until this point, he was in training and it turned out to be his last day. He was an ear, nose and throat specialist and, and died of multiple shrapnel wounds this week, and it's it's my understanding that the burial uh, is happening for him today as well. 
There were others as well, at least four other health workers who were injured in this uh, bombing in Kherson. And the city has been repeatedly targeted uh, ever since its liberation in November. It was a direct airstrike and it damaged the operating theater as well as two floors of the hospital. Uh, Dimitri's story is just one of so many There have been over 1,000 hospitals, clinics, medical facilities that have been intentionally attacked by Russian forces. All of these sites are marked. You can see from airspace what uh, a hospital or a storage facility looks like. And often, even more cruelly, there are double and triple tap strikes where the emergency response comes in, uh, humanitarian aid workers at the site of the attack, and then... Um, They drop further bombs to essentially destroy any chance of saving those individuals as well as that uh, physical space. And it's become so dangerous that UN organizations, um, if we think back to the destruction caused on Mariupol, don't send their staff into these zones anymore because the danger is so high And this leaves civilians feeling completely abandoned, and it demoralizes the population. And that's why it's part of that strategy. But even in war, there are rules. So bombing hospitals and clinics, this breaches international humanitarian law. And it is a war crime, as has been said many times. Yet it's an increasingly common strategy. Uh, It's been used in Syria. And it goes unpunished. There are no immediate consequences for this. Uh, Before Kherson, we saw two doctors killed in in Dnipro, uh, just as the World Health Assembly, the the biggest meeting of the WHO, was happening in uh, UN headquarters in Geneva. I mean, victims hope that these war crimes will eventually be acknowledged uh, by the ICC and accountability will be served. But... There's more that we can do today to deter this very specific war tactic against healthcare systems. The story of Dimitro, um, I think it so, has moved so many people because, uh, you know, it was a, a young, bright talent that has been killed. And this is the story of so many young people. I can't stress enough the cost of what Ukrainians are paying for global democracy, European security. The casualties are difficult to ascertain, but from recent reports of out of 100 soldiers wounded within about three miles of the front line, 36 suffered extremely severe injuries, uh, while 5 to 10 percent of all deployed troops were killed. Again, like this is coming from the Ukrainian military estimates, so Dom can comment about that level of accuracy. But if you compare it to the U.S. side, only 1.3 to 2 percent of U.S. troops deployed in recent conflicts died in action. So the price that is being paid is just so heavy. And this hope for the new generation, the longer this war goes on, the more problematic it's going to be for recovery and building of Ukraine. Thanks, Oksana. Let's zoom in slightly further on some of the injuries sustained by soldiers in the field. You've been looking at antimicrobial resistance in the war zone. What have you discovered and what do you think is important for our listeners to understand? Yeah, so last time that I was uh, on this podcast, I was talking about the work of the Pharmacist Defense Association on sending specialized medicines uh, to military hospitals in Ukraine. And and recently, I was in uh, Lublin in Poland, near the Ukrainian border, where I met with the Ukrainian Ministry of Health, the UK Ministry of Defense. And we were looking at the antimicrobial situation. So just to back up, antimicrobial resistance uh, means that bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites evolve and then no longer respond to medicines, making infections much harder to treat. And this is especially dangerous because once antibiotics are no longer uh, effective, it will take us back to the dark ages of medicine. So Routine procedures like cesareans or chemotherapy will become too dangerous to conduct. Unfortunately, in Ukraine, prior to the war, antibiotics were frequently sold over-the-counter and overused. So this contributed to, to that problem. But what we're seeing now and what we've heard from the lab technicians who gave us the updates is that 
often they do not have the technology to get the sensitivity reporting in time, which means that uh, if you have either a, a soldier or a civilian who comes in with an infection, they can't test what type of pathogen, what would be the best antibiotic to use because it just takes too long, which means that the doctors are guessing because they can't get those test results quickly enough and they throw all the antibiotics that they have because they know that often, particularly if it's soldiers coming from the front line, they may have been moved to five different hospitals to many different regions and will be carrying you know, many different bugs. So as a result of that, uh, if they, they try to hedge their bets and, and, and use what they can, as a result, if they get it wrong, then you know, they're losing more soldiers, not just in combat, but because of health complications not being dealt with uh, effectively. And the Ministry of Health also reported skyrocketing case of infections of gram-negative bacteria. And we are now at a point where we're looking at sort of the last line of antibiotics, some forms of carbapenemase producing strains, uh, which are resistant to virtually all antibiotics. Now, war zones in particular, we see uh, infections spreading because of the conditions, because of the emergency circumstances where it's not always possible to have sterile procedures before they get into a, a hospital. And as a result, that means that even if you can save a limb, you may have to amputate far more. So it may start with the hand, but the infection's not controlled, and then you have to go up to the elbow, to the um, and, and before you know it, the whole arm is removed because of that. So even in cases where we see that there are bone grafts and, and different types of technology, the very simple, almost rudimentary aspects of infection control mean that they cannot save the limbs. And what we're looking at right now are estimates of twenty to 50,000 Ukrainians who have lost one or more limbs since the start of the war. So by comparison, if we look back to World War I, <laughs> that some 67,000 Germans and 41,000 Britons had to have amputations when this procedure was the only one to prevent death. And then if we look in for uh, more recently in Afghanistan, 2,000 U.S. veterans had to have uh, amputations uh, due to the Iraq invasion. So often these types of ampu amputations occur because the antibiotics are not working. And even when you have 3D printed bone implants uh, and initial success, you have to take off the whole arm anyway. So I think that was very devastating to learn when we went into Poland and spoke to these healthcare professionals dealing with this day in and day out. Um, and the WHO has donated some rapid testing kits, but they're, they're just not enough of them. So the Pharmacist Defense Association is again gathering funds to address this issue. Thanks, Oksana. Dom, can I bring you in here? What was your experience as a soldier when you had to deal with things like antimicrobial resistance? Yeah, so I think this was becoming much better known. I mean, it was well, it was well known when I was serving, but actually having practical applications to deal with it. I mean, I did my last tour in Afghanistan I was 10, 11, so, you know, a little, a little while ago. But we were issued antimicrobial un undershorts, so un underwear, which were, I mean, I don't know the, the technology behind it, but it was, it was embedded with biological technology, I suppose you'd say, to protect against disease, basically. So if you if you were blown up with a with a mine and, and you survived the mine strike, the amount of rubbish and dirt and, and crap from the environment that could be blasted into your body could then lead to extreme complications and death. If you survived the blast, that was basically just the just the start of it. I mean Oxana would know a lot a lot more about how hard it is to then try and chase down disease and sepsis and what have you if it, if it you know once it takes takes hold of you after such a such an extreme and energetic event as a as an ied blast or you know a landmine basically if you step on it and you, and all that crap gets into your into your body you know I, I, and you survive i don't know how hard it is then to to stay alive thereafter but that was my as far as my awareness of it that was put your pants on dom which i which i i did manage to do most days still do but Oksana, you know, I look to you for how serious is it after a blast to try and protect against the disease that could easily follow? It is very quick to advance. And that is why these types of, I'd say, quite creative solutions are needed. So it is very common to lose multiple limbs as a result of it not 
being quickly not reaching a medical facility or treatment quickly enough. So, uh, and, and I would also just expand that we shouldn't only care about AMR in Ukraine. Again, like people, microbes are mobile. They spread from country to country and, and person to person via genes at a molecular level. So this means that when an antibiotics stop working in one part of the world, it's only a matter of time before they stop protecting us here. The only thing we really have in our favor is intelligence, and so we need to use that effectively. Part of that means getting better testing equipment, ensuring that the supplies are available, that we have these types of innovations to prevent further spread of infections and antimicrobial stewardship so that we prevent their use where it's not needed. So again, I think this is one of the biggest global health threats we are facing, and it's not just a problem in Ukraine. The, the war has drastically exacerbated it, and as a result of all of these infections and amputations that are occurring, the superhuman facilities are now expanding in Lviv, and they uh, specialize in prosthetics. So I would say the Ukrainians on their end are doing everything in their capability to adapt, to offer a better support for people with disabilities, uh, which historically Ukraine has been very poorly equipped uh, for, for infrastructure. But I think we really need to be paying attention to this. I mean, the WHO has already highlighted uh, AMR as one of the top 10 global health threats. And it kind of evokes some memories of COVID <laughs> in terms of the consequences. Oksana, can I ask you about a story that's come out of Ukraine yesterday? And this is, well, I got this from Ukranska Pravda, and a listener has very kindly uh, alerted us to it. This is the news that combat medics may be allowed to transfuse blood after training. So this comes from Hannah Malia, Ukraine's deputy defence minister, who said, together with the health ministry, we have found a solution to this issue. The issue here is to ensure that these people have the appropriate training. That's what we discussed. She said that the Medical Forces Command and the Ministry of Defence and the Ministry of Health have found a compromise. Combat medics who had not been taught to perform transfusions as part of their original training, will be allowed to transfuse blood after undergoing appropriate training. Can you tell us a little bit about this and just your reaction to it? Well, everything is about risk versus benefit. So certainly there is going to be some increased risk of infectious disease. But when we look at the benefit by comparison, it means that uh, people will have a much quicker response towards you know, potentially bleeding out, all the other things that happen in casualties. I think it's exciting to see that this type of support is and training is occurring because even with any form of donation that you receive, uh, medical uh, equipment or sol- supplies, so Canada's also uh, recently sent over stabilizing units so that if you are at the site of an attack before you reach the hospital, you have better support. Uh, in this instance, the more people that are trained to respond to these types of life and death issues, the better chance of survival. And while Russia has many more people to feed into the meat grinder, we need to think of all the ways that we can preserve the lives of people who are affected in Ukraine, soldiers to civilians. So I welcome this news. It doesn't mean that it doesn't come without risk, but training is one of the the aspects that came out of our mission in Poland that the Ukrainian Ministry of Health has been asking for from Western allies uh, to help their staff respond. So I welcome that. Thanks very much for responding to that, Oksana. Dom, can I go back to you for just one final sort of update slash little discussion? I mean, we were talking earlier about the British MOD's uh, sort of information notice they put out yesterday, which appeared to blame the undergrowth in Ukraine, the reason being for the slow advance of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. You talked me through that earlier. I thought it was rather fascinating. Can you just tell us what you think the MOD were getting at and how important do you think this issue is? So this was yesterday's British Defence Intelligence tweet, or and they talked about how one of the reasons for the slow advance, I mean, there are many, many different reasons, but slow Ukrainian counteroffensive is that the the warm summer weather has caused you know, the undergrowth to to grow across the the countryside. It's not being farmed, so there, there is a, there's a lot of foliage and, and, and plants and grass and, and all the rest of it. And it doesn't need to grow that long before it obscures the mines that are laid there. So the tweet yesterday sounded a little bit kind of glib. It was talking about foliage and plants and flowers and, and what have you, but actually it does talk to a very basic but fairly critical 
issue, which is if you can't see the blooming ground, you know, you, you first of all, you can't see what you're putting your foot on or driving your tracks over, but also the confidence. Yeah, if you can't see the ground, going back to Iraq and especially Afghanistan, I, I, the issue of IEDs, improvised explosive devices, shook the British Army, in my experience, more than any other issue through my 23-year career. I mean, absolutely. Well, British society as a whole and the, the armed forces and army in, in particular, we really caused a jolt. It was the if you like, I've, I've likened the idea to be the, the car bomb of its day. So the car bomb in the 70s, you know, beloved of terrorists and what have you, that could and, and it could strike anywhere. Who knew Who knew which one was going to go up next? I think it's, it's just the, the psychological aspect of it. IEDs were just as much psychological weapons as they were physical weapons. But that, that inability to know if your next step was going to be your last or you know, going to take your leg off or kill you or your mates or, or what have you. I mean, it did play on your mind. I mean, I was in I was in Helmand. We had uh, U.S. Marine Corps with us. I remember a day where, in one incident, a, a, a U.S. Marine Corps patrol were hit, and four U.S. Marines were, as in, hit by an IED. Four U.S. Marines hit by one IED strike, and between them, these four Marines lost eleven limbs. Between four men, eleven limbs. They all survived. But they lost eleven limbs, uh, and they survived partly because of the the battlefield medicine these days is so much better. But just think about that. I mean, think about what they do next. And then literally the day after that, we had, it was a British guy in, in our, in our um, brigade stepped on a mine. It didn't go off properly and only broke his ankle, you know, which is, I've not done it myself, but I imagine broken ankle, bloody painful. But just imagine what that does to your mind. And if you sit there now thinking, would you rather have a broken ankle or take your chances that you'll survive a mine? I mean, it's just awful. So that played on the minds of, of British soldiers for years until cool heads steadied the ship and we learnt to look at mines mines are made by men uh, generally in Afghanistan they were the attacks were planned by men men make mistakes so you get into the mindset of the enemy you work out how they think how they build these things how they plan their attacks and you defeat them you come up with solutions you defeat them but the, the psychological aspect of these things should, should never be underestimated and it's exactly the same right now in Ukraine and it as I say, it sounds a bit bit funny to be talking about plants and flowers and growing grass, what have you, but it comes right down to that. If you can't see the ground that you're stepping on and driving over, it plays on your mind constantly. And that's one of the reasons that the, the advance is so slow. In the hev- most heavily densely seeded areas, it's assessed that there are five mines in each square metre. Now, of course, that's not everywhere across the front, but that's in the worst places. Imagine that. Imagine trying to advance through through that now they can be cleared this is why all minefields like any obstacle has to be covered by observation has to be covered by fire these things can be can be cleared in a cool environment with no one shooting at you you know very able to find them and clear them but you know do that under fire it's a whole different kettle of fish i've thankfully never had to do that but you know i know people who have it's bloody awful so all these things considered it's so so hard the task that is in front of that southern front of Ukraine troops, 9 and 10 Corps, right now. And it comes down to things like how much grass is there. It comes down to where are the folds in the in the ground, Where's the, where are the concertina wire that the Russians have undoubtedly put out, just these small, low-level things that can really snarl up the movement of personnel and, and vehicles. So, yeah, yesterday's tweet might have sounded a little bit, a little bit funny, talking about flowers and things, but you know, take that thought on and embed it in the psychological side of warfare and and it really starts to bring home how horrendous and horrendously difficult this task is that's in front of Ukraine. Thank you very much, Dom. Before we go to our final thoughts, Oksana, is there any, are there any more updates or things that you would like to discuss? Just again, to highlight that nearly one in 10 hospitals in Ukraine have been damaged in some form by Russian attacks, with some oblasts obviously being much more affected. I'm thinking of Mariupol, where almost eight out of 10 healthcare establishments were damaged uh, or destroyed. And that in my view, every time that, uh, you know, this war crime occurs, you know, for the thousand healthcare targets, there should be 1,000 responses, whether that's dialing up sanctions. We can start with Cantor, who is a Russian oligarch, fertilizer tycoon worth $11.3 billion, largest shareholder, 
of uh, the Akron company. He has escaped sanctions in the U.S. and Canada. And I'm thinking of Bill Browder, who's been an extremely effective advocate of uh, the use of sanctions and has uh, lobbied for the landmark Global Magnitsky Act, has also uncovered how countries like Switzerland have been enabling oligarchs to hide their assets. But to rebuild these hospitals, let's seize these Russian assets. Every time there is a strike, I think enough is enough now. We shouldn't just put our hands up in the air and say, oh, here's another war crime for the ICC to judge down the line. The foreign assets abroad, uh, governments need to, instead of dialing down their efforts, really step it up now and use that to rebuild as this conflict continues. Uh, And of course, alongside that, we should call for the continued investigations. I'm thinking of Oleksandr Matvichuk, the Nobel Peace Prize winner who's been extensively documenting human rights crimes. Uh, But destroying hospitals, schools, and uh, power grids, grain uh, silos, these are all ways to achieve military aims. They've used them before in Chechnya and Syria and have never faced accountability. So if the impunity doesn't end now, we will see many more hospitals, uh, civilian centers destroyed. And, and remember, health centers are supposed to enjoy special protection. So this will just become uh, a regular means of war in the future because unpunished evil always grows. So I really am advocating for much stronger response. I think our sanctions have been pretty weak up until this point and, and not effective. And also just experiencing some of my work, the disinformation tactics and how pervasive it is from the Russian side. So, yes, we have the the very obvious destruction of uh, bombing buildings, but even at quite uh, unglamorous bureaucratic procedures, we see that a Russian delegation have been distributing disinformation pamphlets claiming that it's Ukraine who's bombing their own hospitals at meetings like the World Health Assembly. This is when all the health ministers in the world get together in Geneva to set the agenda for uh, WHO by voting. Uh, This year, when I was there, Russia tried to block Ukraine uh, joining the WHO executive board by forcing a vote uh, by secret ballot. Now, since 1997, these types of country rotations to join the board uh, have been very routine. They get passed without any drama. Uh, But this year, this scandal really, I would say, uh, rocked the entire uh, week of meetings. Ultimately, Russia did lose with 123 votes in favor of Ukraine. But they did actually go to the voting aspect. It should have been shut down before that. So I think that uh, the WHO's response, the UN's response is a bit tepid. (laughs) And in the name of neutrality, I don't think they're fulfilling what they're uh, original goal or mission should be. This, I would say the brazen disinformation campaign is not new. It's just the fact that it's penetrating all levels, all sectors, from um, healthcare to the art world to even academic unions. So um, there's there was quite a lot of outcry when we saw that the UCU union tried to push through a resolution uh, to stop sending arms to Ukraine. Uh, eventually that did get reversed. But all of this is the sort of the spokes of the Russian very effective disinformation machine. And I think we need to be extremely vigilant about it in all spheres and respond to it appropriately. I think lack of response, being weak on response, will prolong the war um, and cost us much more in the end. Thank you very much, Oksana, for joining us. Dom Nichols, can I go to you for your final thought, please? Uh, as always, keep an eye on the, the, the counteroffensive, of course, but just be cautious with any frothy commentary uh, over the weekend. There are reports that Ukrainian forces south of Robotine are in the first line of, of the Russian main line of defence, unverified. But that, um, if, they're, if they are there and they are able to hold that, then that is... That is incredible. Oh, sorry. I mean, is it not that it is not credible. It is, it is good good news if they were able to hold it. That plus the whole thing in the Black Sea. There's more more images been put online as we've been on on air today, showing the uh, that landing landing car uh, the landing ship, the Rabucha class landing ship in the Black Sea, looking very very unhappy indeed, listing to port quite significantly um, after the uh, Moskva, the flagship of the Black Sea fleet. If this one goes down as well, I mean that that is a 
that's a big old bite. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of reason why people are going to be putting, uh, posting all sorts of stuff over the weekend. I just, just caution it, just you know, take a breath, verify sources, get it from as many different places as possible. And, um, and, and then we'll hopefully we'll get some ground truth from that. But yeah, the, the things are moving. If this is 10 core moving into the fight, replacing nine core, then, then that could be, I mean, they're fresher troops, uh, equipped with, with more modern, um, equipment, albeit as I said earlier, that's not everything. But yeah, there, there could be some significant moves uh, over the, over the weekend. But we shall uh, we'll, we'll come back and report on Monday, as always. Thank you very much, Dom Oksana. As our guest, would you like the very final thoughts? Thank you. I just wanted to also give a big thank you to all the listeners who previously did donate to the um, Medicines to Ukraine dot com website. Uh, and have supported the Pharmacist Defense Association's work in Ukraine. Just an update here that uh, via various platforms, so one of them is through the, the Just Giving arm, uh, we have raised over $3 million to, uh, for uh, specialized medicines. And uh, again, it, that's down to so many of you who, who donated reference that <laughs> you heard about it through this podcast. So uh, again, as also one of, a big fan of Ukraine the Latest, uh, just want to thank all the listeners for uh, all of your concern, care, and compassion. Thank you for um, all of your support. Um, I, I think that eventually I do have hope that uh, we will defeat the myth of Russian supremacy in Eastern Europe and that the population will have to finally for the first time in its history – face their true story and collective guilt. Thank you, Dom and Oksana. In the UK, as Ukrainian refugees who've been resettled here look to the future, MPs are seeking clarity about what will happen after their three-year visas expire. I spoke to politics reporter Genevieve Hull-Allen, who's been digging into this story. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Genevieve. Obviously, regular listeners will know you coming on and talking about the Ukraine Live blog, which you ran with the Foreign Desk. Um, You're currently with the lobby, so the political press pack of the Telegraph. You've written a really interesting story about the future of Ukrainian refugees in the UK. Why is the future of the thousands of Ukrainian refugees who came to the UK in doubt? So as most people will know, after the war broke out in Ukraine... Britain set up two programmes for refugees to enter the country. So there was the Homes for Ukraine scheme where a refugee could be sponsored by a UK household for for six months or or longer. And there was also a Ukraine family scheme which allowed applicants to join family members who were already in the UK. Now, both of these schemes originally granted stays of up to three years on visas that were issued. And the first visas will begin to expire in March 2025. And so far, the government has hasn't issued any guidance to these refugees as to what is going to happen beyond this fixed term. Now, unfortunately, as as things stand, there is a chance that the war won't be over by then. And and even if it were, as charity figures told me, the infrastructure in much of Ukraine, particularly to the east, has been destroyed. And it it could struggle to handle a mass influx of all refugees, of which there are more than six million which have been displaced, returning to the country as soon as the war is over. And the decision, it may feel like some time away, but Ultimately, the first refugees are approaching halfway through that visa. And charities have said that, you know, waiting until one or two months before the first visas begin to expire, just don't give Ukrainian refugees much space to make decisions about longer term plans for their housing, employment, the education of their children and and other issues. More than 182,000 Ukrainians have entered Britain via these channels. And the majority came in the first six months after the war broke out. So that's roughly 100,000 who face potentially having to leave the country by September 2025. Now, I put this to Robert Buckland, who is the former Justice Secretary under Boris Johnson. And he told me that the government should really start the preparatory work on this so that the Ukrainian families who have come here can be prepared and make plans for what will happen next with some certainty. And Bob Seeley, who's the co-chair of an all-party parliamentary group, which is sort of cross-party and informal group who pay attention to matters on Ukraine, he he said that the government has 
led on Ukraine and supported Ukrainian families extensively, but and acknowledged that there is still some time until these visas begin to run out. But he said that Ukrainians in the UK do need that clarity. He said, I hope that the Ukraine war will have ended by next year, but if it drags on or if some land is not liberated but remains under Russian occupation, we do need to think of the consequences for Ukrainian families here. Some will want to go home regardless, others perhaps not. So essentially what I was hearing is the government just needs to say something, indicate that there is going to be some planning ahead on this. So what exactly are the options on the table for ministers when they're making this decision about what to offer or what to do about the Ukrainian refugees in the UK? Well, there are a few options. Charity figures told me that perhaps the most straightforward solution in a practical and perhaps a political sense would be a short time frame extension, say of another six months and then another six months, which could provide some breathing room, but still leaves refugees in quite a precarious situation. Sir Robert Buckland, he suggested to me that there would need to be a what he described as a bespoke response to this, given that the Ukraine visa schemes were devised specifically for this particularly urgent and unprecedented situation in Europe. And he suggested that this response could allow for what he described as some form of settled status that wouldn't necessarily go as far as citizenship. And as one charity figure told me, pre-settled status would grant more stability. It would allow people to stay here with the same systemic access without granting indefinite leave to remain straight away. And it would allow people to go back to Ukraine for some time with the flexibility to come back to the UK if things turned unsafe again. Kate Brown, who is the CEO of a charity called Reset that was consulted by the government when it set up the Homes for Ukraine programme in 2022, she said that we could look, for example, towards Canada, which is creating a pathway to citizenship for Ukrainians. And she said that gives people for whom the UK is now home the ability to make plans for the future, something we all need. So there are a number of options which range from much more short term to much more permanent solutions. Just for our international audience, what's the sort of domestic political context for these decisions and these discussions? Well, the UK has positioned itself as a firm ally of Ukraine from the very beginning of this war. And what will make it slightly complicated is that if the government signals, for example, that Ukrainians can stay in the UK for much longer, it could be considered to undermine the confidence that Ukraine will have secured victory by late 2025. Or indeed, it could suggest that Ukrainians don't necessarily have to go back to contribute to those rebuilding efforts, which are so central to the discussions on a global stage about Ukraine after the war ends. And the Home Office told me... Through our Ukraine schemes, we have provided Ukrainians with access to a three-year visa for temporary sanctuary in the UK. We will keep this under review should an extension be required in the future in line with the developments of the situation in Ukraine. And of course, that is something that does happen when there is an evolving global situation. The government will keep an eye on it, will update as, as it goes on. But of course, for these Ukrainian families who have now been here for some time, they want a little bit more than that. What about the refugees themselves? Do we know much about what they want to do? So obviously there will be many refugees who want to return to Ukraine as soon as it is safe to do so. However, there is no currently no telling when that's going to be. And also, interestingly enough, ONS data released in July said that half of Ukrainian adults intend to live in the UK most of the time, even when they feel like it's safe to return to the country. And as I've said the infrastructure of much of the country will need significant rebuilding so that it can support the population in the way that it did before the war, which may well be part of the considerations here. He told me it's almost a better thing if it's a slower or more targeted return back of, of refugees mm. wanted to save to do so. It's just important that there is a positive framing around it on the UK side, saying that the UK isn't trying to steal people away from Ukraine and, and detract from those efforts from rebuilding the country once it's safe to do so. What are the other really big issues facing Ukrainian refugees in the UK right now? What do we know? Speaking to these charity figures, I think it, the Homes for Ukraine scheme has been considered pretty successful, I'm, I mean, at least among those that I, that I spoke to, and, and it did show a, a significant strength of support from Britain to, to Ukrainians quite quickly after the war broke out. However, there are, of course, significant challenges that face Ukrainian refugees here, particularly with regards to housing. Obviously, the rental market is a pretty challenging environment for a lot of people at the moment. But Ukrainian refugees who may have had stability for six months or more with a host family when they first got here, some have found it particularly tough to, to go into the rental market with no credit record and, and no reference from a previous landlord. 
And some charities have gone on to raise the alarm about the rise of homelessness among Ukrainian refugees who just have nowhere to go after their sponsor arrangement ended. One charity figure told me that some hosts have ended up as guarantors, rental guarantors for Ukrainian families that they hosted, which is a pretty significant responsibility to take on. Uh, and in, in June, the, the government did announce a fund of £150 million to help Ukrainians into their own homes or assist on kind of continued sponsorship agreements. But housing is a, a particularly big challenge at the moment. Thanks, Genevieve. Anything else you'd like to mention? Obviously, it is still a fair few months away until 2025. But these emergency schemes which were put in place with what originally seemed to be a pretty long stay, they will come to an end sooner rather than later. And what the government will decide to do about this scheme and for the thousands of refugees, welcome to it will definitely be something to watch. And as this original deadline looms closer, it will become a bigger issue among politicians. However, at the centre of this are Ukrainian refugees who have already faced a huge amount of uncertainty and instability having to flee the war. And they just want some clarity from the government about at least what their options could look like mm. and some reassurance that the government and the Home Office are looking ahead on this issue. The government, too, is considering implementing similar Ukraine-style sponsorship schemes for other refugees coming into the country, particularly for Afghan refugees. So the logistics of this scheme, its success and how it plans out in the longer term may have broader implications for that, too. Genevieve, thank you so much for your time. I know you have to get back to Parliament. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is today produced by Elliot Lampett. The executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.